Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, March the 24th, 2023. It's been another remarkable week um, in the story, the unfolding, the rapidly unfolding story of chat GPT and the AI revolution. This week, uh, OpenAI introduced chat GPT plugins, which sounds a little clunky or technical, but actually means that increasingly... Um, ChatGPT can now browse the web and help book flights. It's essentially becoming a kind of browser or a combination of browser and search engine, um, which obviously has dire implications for Google, who launched their own version of ChatGPT this week, Bard. Uh, increasingly, most people in Silicon Valley are recognizing that this is the real thing after the nonsense about crypto and, and various other Web3 uh, inventions. This new revolution is actually going to change everything. A couple of VCs wrote this week uh, that this represents software's Gutenberg moment, a profound historical moment in the history of civilization, of course, for Gutenberg in the 15th century. One wonders whether ChatGPT will rival that. Bill Gates certainly thinks so. He had a piece out in his uh, circular gate notes, the age of AI has begun, and he acknowledges that uh, he's seen two demonstrations of technology that struck him as revolutionary. The first was the demonstration um, of uh, a graphical user interface, which enabled the Microsoft-driven revolution. The second was seeing the open AI stuff. This is having enormous implications on every vertical in our business life, everything from education to law, and above all else, uh, medicine. Um, Robert Pearl is a frequent guest on the show. He's one of America's leading writers, thinkers, critics, activists, innovators on the medical front. He teaches at Stanford Medical School. He has his own very popular newsletter. He's a best-selling writer. He used to run Kaiser Permanente. And he's increasingly transfixed with the potential implications and perhaps problems of chat GPT. Um, and many people agree with him. Uh, there was a piece in the USA Today, for example, about how chat GPT is poised to upend all medical information. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Um, and uh, I have our old friend, uh, Robert Pearl, Dr. Robert Pearl on the show, uh, is joining us from Connecticut. He ricochets between the coasts. So, Robert, when did you realize that this was the real thing? At what point did you understand, like Bill Gates, that this was going to change everything? The first time I tried but at the time it was uh, ChatGPT, now it's GPT-4. The first time I used it, I knew that this was going to be the answer. Uh, I have been a follower of AI for a long time. I wrote about it on my Forbes blog close to a decade ago. But I've also been skeptical that the applications that have been brought to bear in healthcare would flower and bloom. And I think most of them have stalled out. But it was very clear the first time I tried this technology, 
that it would be, as you said earlier, a revolution equal to the Gutenberg Bible, the agrarian revolution, the industrial revolution, uh, computers, information technology, um, the internet. These are all of the pieces that I think will be rivaled by this new interface. It will not only change the way that doctors practice, it will finally empower patients to be able to manage and lead their own health. Robert, what would you say to skeptics, and there are still a lot around who say, we always hear these things about new technology, we get all these promises, we heard the same about crypto, how it was going to radically transform the financial system. Uh, we've heard the same about so many other technologies, and yet things remain the same. You have to dive deep into the differences among them. But one point I want to make for your viewers and listeners, what exists today is 1% of what will be the answer. So when I talk about it being revolutionary, transformative, I'm not talking about chat GPT or even GPT-4. I consider those relatively toys compared to what will exist. Uh, healthcare technology advances. Moore's law says every two years it doubles. That would mean that what exists today will be 30 times more powerful in a decade and a thousand times more powerful in two decades. And it's that technology that I am talking about, not a, what exists today, but the path. And this is maybe another answer to the question you posed earlier. What I could see is that the path forward is not limited by technological restrictions. It's only limited by our ability to understand what's coming and what's possible. And when you start to understand how much more powerful it will be, I think almost all the skepticism is not about the future. It's about the current. And the current accurately underestimates what's possible. But when you see that as being 1% of the future, you have a very different view of where we will be in a very short amount of time. Robert, you teach at Stanford Medical School, one of the top medical schools, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, this is a school which passes on knowledge, information, research, which has been accumulated over the last few hundred years since the scientific revolution. To what extent is this AI revolution going to be a new chapter in that scientific revolution, or does it enable the scientific revolution? Is it built on top of what we already know about medicine and the human body? So I teach, as you say, at the Stanford Medical School, but I also teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I teach about technology and about healthcare and in a course on strategy. And it's fascinating how different the view is between those two schools that are only separated by half a mile. The business school understands what is about to happen and people will be finding solutions to the problems that exist today. I think in the medical school, and I don't mean the leaders of the medical school, I'm really talking much more about the students that are there, the faculty that is there. They can't yet see all of the advances that will happen because to do so, you have to recognize the problems that currently exist. 
New England Journal of Medicine had an article, one in four patients admitted to a hospital in the United States today suffers a major medical mistake. We know that 200,000 people die every year from medical errors. Yeah, it, it's, it's so, yeah, I mean, if I was listening to some crazy person on the internet, I might not be too bothered, Robert, but coming from a guy who understands the American medical system as well as anyone, do you think those numbers may even be underestimated? They could be, but the point would be that this technology will make healthcare safer. And again, not the application today, but as you pointed out in your introduction, many of the ways that video and other tools to bring additional information besides what's available on the internet into the application, it's a, it's a predictive application. You know, GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. It's pre-trained like we train medical students. Lots of information out of books, articles, journals. It's, trans it's a transformer. It has rules, the way residents learn to take the information out of the textbook and apply it to patients. And then it predicts something about the future, generates an answer, a next word, a concept. So think about it this way. You're hospitalized and a doctor's going to put a central line, a large catheter into your heart or you're in ICU, you're intubated, and you don't want to develop pneumonia, we know the steps to prevent it. We know those problems happen frequently. Why? Because clinicians don't do the things that they should be doing. And this is not my research. This is coming out of Johns Hopkins. This technology can watch what's happening and now say, you're about to make a mistake and prevent it from happening. That's remarkable. There's some new information coming out now about what's called black boxes in surgery. This is similar to the airplanes. When there's a crash, they retrieve the black box. Well, you don't want to retrieve a black box. You want to know in advance. This technology can allow that to happen. And patient safety to me is but a small fraction of all the things that will be able to happen. If you don't see an informed patient as being important, then you don't see a problem, you don't see this technology applying. But the answer is right now is that we do a terrible job at prevention. We don't avoid complications from chronic disease, heart attacks, strokes, cancer. Imagine if we could do those things, how much better clinical outcomes would be, how much better people's health would be, how much lower costs could be. We're often blind to the frailties of humans and we're hypercritical of machines. We focus in driverless cars on the, let's say, 5,000 deaths that might happen if every car were driverless, but we ignore 50,000 deaths that happen right now on the road due to human error. You've been very critical of the industry. Uh, you've written two books, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, and this is from a a medical insider, and then mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care and why we're usually wrong. Uh, last time you were on the show, uh, you talked to me about um, how the U.S. healthcare system is resistant to innovation. Um, you've run, um, you ran uh, Kaiser Permanente. I think uh, you, you were in charge of 
10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff. And uh, so you understand these large bureaucracies as well as anyone. To what extent do you think, Robert, the medical industry, hospitals, the insurance companies, doctors, they're all going to resist the profound disruption of, of this new technology? Let me start by saying that I am actually a big supporter, uh, although I have provocative titles to my books. I talk in both of them about how medicine is the greatest profession. Uh, the people who go into it are remarkably dedicated and committed, the doctors and the nurses that provide the care. But I do feel a obligation in this, I'll call it my third career, having led, as you say, within Kaiser Permanente, now looking nationally, to open people's eyes to both the good and the problem, to the way that clinicians can be heroes, but also to create problems that exist. But you're absolutely right. There's a series that I'm writing right now for Forbes about the conglomerate of, mo conglomerate of monopolies. These are the hospitals, the insurers, the drug companies, the private equity-driven physicians who have gained market control and are not going to be happy to relinquish it. Now, having said that, one of the points that I want to make is that what's different about ChatGPT, generative AI, from the other AI applications is it's not, it's not a product. It's an, it's an enabler. It's an application. I think about it like the telephone. The telephone is not about the telephone itself, whether it's mobile or not. It's about the things that you can say over it, the things you can do, the ability to order um, products, services, the ability to do financial transactions, the ability to use it to connect with people that you care about, that you have relationships with. That is what the telephone is about. It's not that physical thing in front of you. And that's what happens with ChatGPT. This technology is different because everyone can use it however they want. And in that way, in a sense, one of the, I'll call it, fears that have been created is it's not regulatable. You can't control it. People can use it. Now, what's different about the current system is they will not use it because it will create, I'll say, financial harm for the legacy players. The beneficiaries, of course, will be patients. So we shall see is that hospitals that could apply to allow patients to have care at home are not going to be encouraging it. I think about this very much the same way telemedicine. A decade ago in Health Affairs, I read an article because this was reflecting what we were doing in Kaiser Permanente. 40% of the care was being done virtually. I predicted that would be a standard in the United States sometime in the future. And until COVID arrived, low single digits, even now it's only about 10%. If you exclude mental health services, much of which is being done now virtually. So I think the legacy players will not do it, Andrew. But I think the process will happen through two forces. It's going to happen, or actually three forces. One will be the patient. The patient wants to be empowered. The second one will be the doctor who already is experiencing burnout because the demands are overwhelming. 
And this technology will allow physicians to provide exceptional care with less time, not more time. And then third will be the retail giants, the Amazon, CVS, Walmart, who as they take over the industry that we discussed last time, take over the industry by having a pharmacy, an insurance arm, a care delivery system, already acquired primary care, expanding primary care, bringing in specialty care, they will see how this application can lead to better health as we move from a fee-for-service system that simply rewards volume, even when it undermines, no less adds, no less doesn't add to clinical quality, and we move to a system of capitation. This will be a tool to maximize health, to reduce complications, to be able to focus on the ways we can keep people healthier, not simply reverse diseases once they develop. I hope you're right. Uh, I mean, one of the things that astonishes me still about the medical industry in this country is how archaic it is, how resistant to innovation. It's the only industry I know that still uses the telephone. Doctors won't email. It's astonishing. It's because they're monopolies. They can get away with quite literally and metaphorically murder. This is an ongoing story, Robert. This won't be the last time we talk about whether or not the industry will or won't change. But you wrote an interesting piece in Forbes about five ways chat GPT will change healthcare forever for better. And these are relatively short-term changes. So perhaps you might talk about those. The first is uh, it will allow it to become, and I'm quoting you here, exponentially faster and more powerful. What did you mean by that? What's well, what I said earlier in the show I make the analogy back to early in COVID when actually on my podcast, Fixing Healthcare, I was trying to explain to listeners what exponential growth looks like. And I used the example of a lily pond where each lily plant replicates every night. And I said that assume it takes 60 days to cover that pond completely and you walk outside your house on day 54, what percentage of that pond is covered by lily pods? And most people said, oh, half. The answer is less than 1%. And so being able to see that exponential curve and recognize that what exists today is nothing like what's going to exist in five to 10 years. And these big changes aren't gonna happen three months from now or four months from now. And by the way, the numbers I gave you earlier assume that doubling was every two years. Right now, it looks like it's every uh, six to 12 months. Just think about how much has changed since ChatGPT first came out. I think it was in November. Now you have Google releasing its IT as AI applications. Microsoft having taken over open AI you have, I know, dozens, maybe even hundreds of physicians who are already using this technology to make diagnoses they could not otherwise come up with, to create information for patients. I know patients who are using it to get more information about their health, and they're using it on, as I say, a tool that has less than 1% the power that it will have in a relatively short amount of time. So no one should be thinking about what exists today. And the only way I, you know, people often ask me about, as you said earlier, the skeptics out there. If someone wants to be a skeptic about this technology, they have to believe 
that it's not going to advance at the rate we've talked about. And that yeah, to me is almost yeah. impossible to imagine. Yeah, we've done lots of shows on exponential technology. It's a term that's often developed by uh, Azim Azar. He's, uh, he's been a guest on the show lots of times, an old friend of mine. The second uh, way, according to uh, Robert Pearl, that this technology will radically change medicine is it will allow technology or it will allow us to emulate how doctors make clinical decisions how will that work are we outsourcing the brain of the doctor to this collective ai robert uh no this is a very important piece and it gets back to the skepticism that you and i have both had about many of the so-called breakthrough the highly hyped applications of the past this is not an application Again, it's a well, it is an application, but it's not a single ability to be wrapped up product. This is an, a tool to allow people to do things with it. And the things they do with it happen to exactly parallel the way that doctors work. What do I mean by that? I said it earlier this pre training, it's loaded with information the same way that. Doctors get loaded by information in medical school. And remember, data says that healthcare information is doubling every 73 days. What human being can have that much information in their brain? As you know, loading this data into a computer can take time, but it's not particularly difficult to do. And so it has that information the way a medical student does. It learns the rules like the way a resident does, and then it generates next steps exactly the way a practicing doctor does. You come to me with symptoms. I take those symptoms and I put it against my knowledge. I apply rules to figure out which applies. Then I predict what tests will allow me to separate the various potential diagnoses. I come up with a diagnosis. Is it 100% accurate? Not usually or definitive, but it's the best of all the uncertainty that exists. And then I put in place a treatment plan that is best designed to meet that. It's exactly the way this technology works. And I want to add a big piece. You never would train a medical student or allow a medical student to take fully care of a patient. You'll always have an attending physician doing that. And this technology will need the same in the early stages. Then what happens? Over time, the medical student becomes a resident and gains expertise and knowledge, some of which by, I don't want to say making mistakes, but by making mistakes in the answer it gives to the attending doctor and having that doctor correct it. But over time, that individual becomes more and more and more accurate. And that, again, is what's going to happen with this technology. Early on, you better have a physician overseeing the answers that are being given. And over time, improving and correcting the thought process, if you want to call it thinking, or the logical process, if you want to look behind what's sitting in AI. And at some point, that ability to predict more accurately, which is really what we're talking about in medicine, machine will become as good as the best doctors and over time potentially 
better than most. You mentioned time. The third area you suggest is this technology, in a sense, does away with time. It provides around-the-clock medical assistance. We always promise that by doctors and hospitals. We never get it. What does around-the-clock medical assistance mean, Robert? So it means two or three different things. A very important one is the shift in disease that the America, that Americans have, or the world has, really, which is that in the 20th century, the diseases we had were acute. You developed pneumonia, you saw a doctor, you got an antibiotic. You developed pain in your abdomen, it was diagnosed as appendicitis, you went to the operating room and it was resolved. Now we have, as the diseases, chronic diseases. Ones that you have your whole life and you suffer from every day. And yet how do we take care of patients? By the calendar. I see you today and I'll see you in three or four months. What this technology can do is continually monitor how you're doing. Wearable devices, machines at home, glucometers, blood pressure cuffs, as data comes in from laboratory tests. It can even monitor your lifestyle against the disease that you have. And it can identify every day what I think is a crucial piece and actually one that I've criticized device manufacturers for not building into their technology companies like Apple's Watch, not building it in there, to be able to tell you what you really want to know. Am I doing well or am I not doing well? Is my, if I'm not doing well, is it a problem that is easy to improve or is it a major problem and a life-threatening one? That is what this technology can provide to individuals by taking the recommendation of treatment by your doctor putting it into a path of improvement that should be happening and measuring your progress against that every day. And if it's two weeks after your last visit, but you're deviating by a large amount from that path, you probably need to see your doctor two weeks later, not four months later. And if four months later, everything is great. You don't need to see the physician maybe for another four or five months going forward. So that's one application, episodic to continuous. The second is what happens at five o'clock or six o'clock every night. You have a child, they have a fever, you don't know what to do. They just tell you to go to the ER. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why is that? Because first of all, you're gonna wait because you're not as sick as the sickest of people. There's a lot of disease that sits in that location. It costs about 10 times more than seeing a physician in the office. A logical solution is going to be to have a doctor available on video to provide that care. This can be an intermediate tool to help you know how severe the problem is likely to be, to connect you with a physician who can provide that expertise and insight, and then to facilitate all the parts of that process. And the last part I wanna add is when it comes to lifestyle medicine, there's a growing amount of data that says with better diet, exercise, weight management, uh, relaxation, that we can address and reverse many of the diseases that sit in society today. Almost impossible to do as an individual. This technology can allow that to happen. It can tell you when to take your medication. When you need a medication renewal, 
It actually can tell you whether you need to have preventive services, schedule it for you. And I just laid out a few of the ways that it can accomplish what you're asking about. There are dozens more that, again, to the positive side, will be able to be done by individuals simply by putting the right questions and the right requests into the generative AI application. Robert, you mentioned the example of someone taking their kid to the ER uh, when they're not quite sure what's wrong with them. Your fourth uh, thing that will change is that you argue it prevents medical errors, which I'm sure is true in part. But of course, when it comes to our kids, statistics don't really matter. If, if in the future we have this broad AI system, which can still make mistakes because nothing um, is, uh, th this system isn't going to know everything. What happens in a world where the AI advises us not to take our kid to the emergency uh, services, to the ER, and then the child dies? How are we going to respond to mistakes made uh, in an AI. Uh, it's one thing to respond to mistakes made by doctors. You, you've been very clear that those are extensive and very worrying. Um, is this going to change? It's obviously, I mean, there's, it's a huge story and I, I, we, we can't spend too long talking about it, but it's going to change everything in terms of not just mistakes, but how we perceive mistakes and treat mistakes. Absolutely, Andrew, you're 100% correct. What I would suggest is that we need a mentality that looks at and is willing to accept, by accept I mean acknowledge, that which exists right now. Are there people whose kids have a problem and they just ignore it and the child dies? Are there situations in which they go to the internet and find some advice and follow that and the child dies? The question is, will this technology be better than what exists today? I mean, you could say that if you have your family physician available 24 by 7, that would be optimal. But even there, doctors make mistakes. But even if they're not going to, you're not going to have physicians 24 by 7. So what we're trying to find is that best place where the benefits are maximal and the negative outcomes are as minimal as possible. Now, if our health system today was consistently doing great care with the best outcomes, you might feel differently about introducing an alternative that could be worse. My personal belief is, we will, is that the application will become dramatically better. Will it ever make a mistake? I'm sure it will, because all of medicine is about probability. It won't make a mistake by giving the wrong dose on a prescription. That's a human error. But where there is a drug that can cause a complication, it may be the best drug, but a complication can happen. That's a statistical probability. And I think the question you're raising is when it comes to information technology and mistakes happen, not because of a, a, a real human error in programming, but just because probability is never 100%. How are we going to manage that? I don't think we've started 
to address that. What's different in medicine and in self-driving cars as an example is that as a human, your chances of seeing a stop sign as a person or a person as a stop sign, very low. It can happen if you're drunk. It can happen in fog and bad weather, but you're not likely to do it. Will a machine do it? Yeah, because we do not have uh, perfect vision and perception yet built into information technology. Medicine, that's not the big problem. The big problem is that medicine is probabilistic. And that's why I find generative AI so exciting because what it does better, and I will say better than humans ultimately, is to be able to do the calculation and come up with the absolute best answer. And then as a society, we have to say, if that answer is 98% perfect, but 2% wrong, then two out of 100 people are going to suffer. That may be 10 times better than what exists today, but how will we handle it both psychologically, sociologically, and legally? Finally, the, the, the fifth uh, area that you write about is that you suggest it will help all doctors perform like the best. We heard about this in the internet. We heard that everyone would be empowered, that everyone could become a creator, a doctor, a lawyer. But the reality, it seems so far in the digital revolution, is it's done away with the middle. It's created an elite of superstar doctors or lawyers or creators or influencers, uh, musicians, doctors. Um, and it's destroyed the middle and you have this massive underclass. Is it conceivable, Robert, that um, that this technology will compound the doing away of what we might think of as a middle class, middle, uh, a middle segment of, of the medical profession and enable a tiny handful of superstars uh, and then an AI and not much in between? I think the opposite, Andrew. I say the opposite because of the nature of this particular technology. So if you look at healthcare today, we know that there are 90 million Americans on Medicaid. And we know that Medicaid does not provide the same excellence in access and as a result of that in quality as the best of private insurance. So the problems and the gap between the haves and have nots have grown as we have expanded the number of people getting care through a system that is not nearly as good as the care that many of the viewers and listeners probably have for themselves. And the problem is not the internet or telemedicine. It's simply the fact that individuals who are socioeconomically challenged, so-called social determinants of health, just can't get the access that's needed. What's great about this particular approach a generative AI, is that everyone can access it. Now, yes, you need to be able to have broadband. It's happening right now. You may know the city of New York is now putting in free broadband for people across a large swath of the area. Uh, I could well see that programs like Medicaid would give access to this technology to people who are socioeconomic challenged, and they are the ones who will benefit the most. Because in the middle of the night, you probably can reach your physician or find another way to get care. They can't. 
In fact, they probably can't even get a primary care physician, but they can access information. And so the huge gap that exists today is going to be closed to some, to a, I'll say to a large degree, it never is going to go away. We know that these social determinants of health have been shown to have three times the impact as direct patient care, but we can minimize many of the challenges that are there. And because of the way this application does, you don't have to give people an expensive tool. You just need to give them the right questions to ask, the right information to enter, and then they will be able to benefit. I think it will make American healthcare improve dramatically. And I think as you've questioned, close the gap between those who get the best care and the rest of our country.